Amen. I love the theme of worship. Jesus Christ is the name above all other names. And at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God. Amen. Well, it is a blessing and a privilege this morning that I be here to be able to hopefully be used of God to bring glory into his name and to bring a response from you. May his spirit work in me today. But I have no easy task this morning as the topic of discussion is, in my opinion, one of the toughest topics in Scripture. I believe that we shouldn't shy away from tough topics in Scripture, but rather that we should that we should lean into them. That we should cry out to God and ask Him to help us better understand His Word that He's entrusted us to read, to understand, and to live by. Amen. Before I begin, I want to open up in prayer. Father God, I thank you so very much for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. We ask you this morning that your spirit be here with us. That your spirit speak through this message. That it may not be my words, but your spirit speaking through me to glorify your name and to edify your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Matthew chapter 25. That's Matthew chapter 25. The parable of the discussion today is going to be the parable commonly referred to as the parable of the ten virgins, which is found in the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 25. But before reading this passage, I'd like to give some context as it relates to the events leading up to this particular chapter, as well as some cultural background so that we may have a better understanding. If we remember back in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes, as it were, on the scribes and on the Pharisees. This was a judgment of sorts that I believe lead up to and tie into what he will be discussing in the later chapters. Then in chapter 24, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple, followed by his wondrous message, often referred to as the Olivet Discourse, where he indicates many signs of the coming age. The discourse was prompted by the disciples asking him in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
Jesus then famously leads into his powerful discourse, which he makes many points. But one point that I'd like to mention is that Jesus Christ is coming back. Can we say amen to that? Jesus Christ is coming again, and that's exciting. He came the first time as a lowly servant to provide salvation to those who would believe. But the second time, He's coming back with power and with fury as a rightful judge. Saving to the uttermost those that draw near to Him, but punishing those with never-ending conscious torment those that He knows not. I know these are tough words. But Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. And the question is, are we, are you, am I ready? So let's dig in. So this parable that we are going to be discussing is the setting of a typical Jewish wedding of that time, which from what I've read, would have had three distinct parts. The engagement, the betrothal or the marriage, and the feast that followed. In preparation for the feast together, the bride and the groom and the attendants would parade through the streets with lamps or torches, proclaiming that the feast was about to begin. Jesus' focus within this parable is as it relates to the attendance of this wedding feast and the groom. Let me start by reading the entire parable. Again, that's Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish And five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. After the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is a very tough parable. This is very tough and Not in the sense that it's intellectually challenging, but in the sense that it's a tough 
word to swallow. So let's walk through this parable verse by verse. Jesus says in his words, starting in chapter 25, verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Then is the first word in the sentence. So let's start there. Then is a conjunction. And if we remember anything about English class, or if we paid attention to the schoolhouse rock videos, that's my generation, we know that conjunctions tie phrases together. The then is there to directly connect chapter 25 to what was previously discussed in chapter 24, as was early, earlier mentioned. Right before chapter 25, Jesus explained that no one will know the day nor the hour of his returning and that we must be ready as he may come at a time when we do not expect. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the late, great theologian R.C. Sproul, but I learned quite a bit from him by listening to his teachings. And one thing really struck me, and that was when he was talking about Hebrew culture. In his teaching session, he explained that in Hebrew culture, there are ways in which they used language to emphasize importance. So in the English language, if we were to write, we may use a bold face or an underline or italics. Or if we're speaking, we may shout very loudly. But as it relates to the Hebrew culture, one of the ways in which they used to emphasize importance was to use repetition. And one of the places that we find this is when Jesus in the Gospels When you find him saying, truly, truly. He's saying, truly, truly. Everything we can argue that Jesus talked about was important. But I believe what he was saying when he said, truly, truly, is he was saying, everything I say is important. But here, this one, if you're not going to listen to anything else, listen up here. Emphasis. Importance. We find this also when Paul is talking to the Galatians and he's talking about how they've quickly left the gospel. And he says, if, if I or even an angel from heaven come to you and preach a gospel contrary to, the, to what you've been taught, let them be accursed. And he says the exact same thing a few sentences later. It's repetition. It's importance. He's using to say, hey, listen up. This is important. And finally, the most important, I believe, use of repetition in all of Holy Scripture is when... The attribute of God is used only one time in the third degree. What is that? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is not what God is, right? He's not holy, holy, but he's holy, holy, holy. I think that is very important. And that's how Hebrew culture emphasized repetition as importance. But I think that's what Jesus is doing here. It's a way of underscoring the importance of this teaching. So Jesus is telling a story to corroborate the teaching that he spoke of in chapter 24. 
if we move on in the passage, the kingdom of heaven is represented here as the culmination of Christ's return or the judgment. And this is evidenced with what Jesus spoke about in chapter 24 and later in this parable. We'll be like ten virgins who took their lamps. These ten virgins would have been, according to custom, from what I've read, hand-selected by the bride. These were ten virgins that were on the surface undistinguishable, indistinguishable from one another. The ten virgins clearly communicate and indicate, as we will find later in this parable, I believe in my mind, in my interpretation, that these represent ten professing believers in Jesus Christ himself. The lamp in this context, from what I've read, would have been similar to a torch, which would have been made up of ragged cloths that would have been dipped in oil and ignited and served as a light to set aglow the path of the procession of the wedding party. This wedding party set out into the darkness at night with the eager expectation to meet the bridegroom. These ten virgins, professing believers, all knew of the eventual arrival of the groom and were all expecting to sit with him at the feast. The bridegroom in this particular parable is none other than Jesus Christ himself, and I believe that to be very very obvious. In sacred scripture, we can see that many times Jesus Christ is referred to as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. So as a review, we've got the second coming of Jesus Christ or the judgment. We have ten professing believers in Jesus Christ. Now the passage gets a little bit more interesting Even though on the surface, these ten professing believers are indistinguishable, there is one distinguishable feature. If we read on, we find that five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. The text indicates in verse 2 and 3, there were two camps of professing believers. Five are said to be wise and five are said to be foolish. And what makes them either foolish or wise? Jesus indicates this as who's prepared. Or who brought their oil with them on the journey. You see, the five foolish virgins did not bring oil with them, but the five wise did. So the big question here is, what is this oil? What does this oil represent? I will answer that question a little bit later. But verse 5 and 6 state that as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Jesus is further underlying the point that he is making in chapter 
24, which is you must be ready. We do not know the time of his arrival. We must be ready. There is no indication that from this parable that the sleep that these ten virgins found themselves in carried any negative connotation. They both fell asleep. They become, became drowsy. However, as we will read on, only one camp was prepared to finish with confidence that which what they set off to accomplish. Reading on, the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are going out. As mentioned earlier, these lamps were most likely like a torch dipped in oil, ignited. Like a candle, the burnt edges would have been, tr- would have been trimmed, re-dipped in the oil, and ignited to sustain the glow. It is interesting that now the foolish virgins, after awaking from their slumber, wanted to receive the oil from the five wise virgins. Perhaps this would have been okay if there would have been enough oil to go around. Or perhaps this would have been okay if it was even possible. I believe that it wasn't possible. But we read on. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. The wise virgins basically said, Hey, there's no way we are giving up our oil. There's not enough. This is my paraphrase, by the way. We don't want to risk the chance of losing out on missing the bridegroom because we sacrificed giving our oil. Go and buy from the merchants. And as we read on, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in to meet him at the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, this is very frightening to me. And that's why I began the sermon by saying that I have no easy task this morning is because this is a hard word. The truth is, is that there were ten professing believers, all of which believed that they were getting into the kingdom of heaven. And the door was shut on some of them. It's frightening. The bridegroom appeared at an hour the foolish virgins did not expect. They went to the market to buy oil, and here comes the bridegroom, ready to feast. The door is shut. And even when the five foolish virgins claiming to know the bridegroom called Lord, Lord. He replies, I don't know you. I believe the door, as do many scholars, the door, I believe, is the door of salvation. We are currently in the age of grace, whereby the door of salvation is currently open. That salvation is humanly 
not humanly possible. It's all a work of God, but it is possible now in the day of grace. But there will be a time when the door of salvation is shut. And I believe this is what this parable is referring to. This word know that Jesus says, I don't know you, isn't know in a sense of mental awareness. Of course, Jesus Christ is mentally aware of everybody. He knows everybody in a sense, of course. All things were made through him. And not one thing was made without him. However, the know in this sense, and I'm not a Hebrew and I'm not a Greek scholar, but the Greek from what I understand is to know in an intimate relationship. So what Jesus is saying is, I know you in a broad sense, but I don't know you in an intimate sense. I don't know you, he says. If the door is indeed the door of salvation, the difference between Jesus knowing the wise virgins and not knowing the foolish virgins circles back to the unanswered question, what's the oil? What is the oil in this parable that Jesus is referring to? Whatever the oil represents is the difference between what I believe and I believe what the Bible teaches who is saved and who is not saved. Historically, the Roman Catholic Church believed that this oil that Jesus speaks of is works. That the oil, you've got to do good works. Well, the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church would be an entire sermon series, and I don't want to go there. Since we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God, I find this to be an inaccurate assertion. On the other hand, the Protestant historical evangelical view of the oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. It is true that Scripture indicates the Holy Spirit is required for salvation. The Holy Spirit is what, what seals the believer. Regardless of what this oil represents, the Roman Catholics have their opinion. Historical Protestants have their opinion. I believe that the answer may lie, and I say may lie, in Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 21, if you would turn there. What Jesus says in this parable is, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I believe that these two teachings are eerily similar, and I would connect the two by saying that the oil in the parable of the ten virgins may be equivalent to doing the will of the Father. Of course, it is not in our doing that saves us, but it is our doing that authenticates the truthfulness of our salvation. Amen? 
Just like works cannot save us, but works corroborate the true faith we possess. Then he goes on and he says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, declare and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about you, but those seem very, very similar. Then he goes on in that passage to say that it's the people who hear his words and do that are wise. The startling message that is consistent between the two teachings is that many professing Christians are deceived. Five out of ten virgins in the parable of the ten virgins. And Jesus simply says, many, he uses the word many in Matthew chapter 7. Also, remember when he describes the broad way, he says, many will be that find it. The truth is, brothers and sisters, there are many deceived Christians. There are many professing Christians that if they were to die today, the door of salvation would be shut. And nothing would await them but judgment. The life as they know it would end like a bad dream. Except it wouldn't be a dream. And it would carry throughout eternity. Now I know in this age, there are a lot of churches and a lot of pastors that are thinking it's taboo to use the word hell. Well, hell exists. And Jesus speaks about it very often. And it isn't my intention to fear monger today. It is my intention to preach what God has entrusted us to understand. And I don't believe that these concepts and these understandings are preached enough. Proverbs 14.12 states that there is a way to live that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof leads to death. Simply put, people have a feeling they're living life the way it ought to be lived. But in the end, nothing awaits them but death. And destruction. If we were to be real with ourselves. If we were to be real with ourselves. Personally. Within this church body. And take. This parable. These parables. This teaching very seriously. There is a good possibility. That there are. Deceived people within this church. There is a good possibility that there could be many. I don't know. I'm not God. That's not my job. But it's a possibility. I know that these are tough words. But these are truths in Scripture, which I believe have been skirted by men because they are afraid of the truth. 
So the biggest question of this hour is, what camp are you in? Of course, if you are deceived, you're going to say, I'm a wise virgin, right? Because you're deceived. So the question is, what shall we do? What shall we do about this? And as I hear many pastors say, I'm glad you asked that question. I'd like to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5, just verse 5. I believe that this is what we should do, and I believe that this is what we're commanded to do if we want to be real with ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Paul doesn't say examine yourselves to see if there is any wicked way within you. That was David asking God to seek his heart. He doesn't say, examine yourselves to see if you've made any mistakes. We all fall short. He says, examine yourself to see if you are truly in the faith. In other words, there are people who are deceived, as mentioned earlier. We are all charged with examining ourselves. All over in Scripture, God talks about this through the writers This great deception. It's all over. If you open your eyes to it, you will see it in various different places. Are we deceived? Am I deceived? Are you deceived? Of course, I believe in eternal security. I believe the Bible teaches eternal security. Once you're saved, He carries that on to completion. I believe in blessed assurance. I believe that you as a believer could, could know through the power of the Spirit that you are saved. I believe in that. But the, but the issue here in Scripture isn't that these are people who had salvation and lost it. The question is, these are people who thought they had it, but never did. That's, that's the topic. That is the discussion here. The reason why I'm preaching this message, a little bit of background about myself. Many years ago, I was being mentored by one of my coworkers at Caterpillar. Ironically, his name was Saul. S-A-U-L. And he challenged me very deeply. And he told me to listen to a message by Paul Washer, some of which maybe you've heard of him. His message was on 1 John. In the passage in 1 John where it says, If you say you have fellowship with God, but you walk in darkness, you're a liar. That was me. I'd been to church. I'd been baptized. I thought I knew what it meant to be a Christian. 
but I walked in darkness. I walked in darkness, and that message hit my heart. And that's why I find it so important. And that's why the concept, the idea, the truth of deception is so near and dear to my heart. It's because I was one. I was a foolish virgin. That was me. So I want to highlight a few points, and then I'll close. Number one is be ready for Christ's return. We do not, we do not know the day nor the hour. Number two, know that deception is a great possibility in the life of a professing believer. Number three, examine yourselves to see if you are truly in the faith. We all have that commandment. We all need to search the inner chambers of our heart, cry out to God, and have Him reveal to us the truthfulness of our salvation. In closing, if you find yourself in the foolish camp after this self-examination, or perhaps you can't identify with even being a professing believer, there is hope. There is hope. And hope has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. The door of salvation, as previously indicated in the sermon, and is indicated within his word, the door of salvation is open. Excuse me. There will come a time when it is closed, but the door is currently open. The gospel is your only hope. It is the only hope for humanity. I say true hope because there are many people who are building their lives upon false hopes. Disregarding the one for whom they were made. The gospel literally means good news. It wouldn't be called good news unless there was some preceding bad news. The Bible indicates that God's standard for us is human perfection. Without sin. It isn't hard for us to quickly realize that that is humanly impossible. The bend of our human heart is not of good. No matter who tells you that, it's not of good. Your heart will testify to the fact that the bend is evil. God's word will testify to the fact that the bend is evil. The Bible teaches this concept. Our hearts testify to that fact. We all fall short. Jeremiah 17, 9 states that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Paul writes in Romans 3, 10 through 12, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's pretty exclusive. That includes all of us, except for Jesus Christ himself. Over and over again in Scripture, we see that God demands perfection. God does not weigh the good intentions or the bad intentions of your heart. He doesn't weigh your good or bad deeds to decide where you'll spend eternity. Since God demands perfection, anything short is not good and is deserving of His wrath. In the final analysis, God's Word, God's word asserts that we all deserve judgment with a painful eternity separated from Him. In our very nature, we have sinned. 
In our very nature, we have sinned, and that sin is punishable by death, eternal damnation. So what can we do? What can we do? Well, as John Piper would say, so that remains on us demands we cannot meet. We can't be perfect. And a curse we cannot bear. There's where the good news comes in. The good news is that Jesus made a way for you and me. He is willing to be sent of the Father in human form to live the perfect life that we could not live and to bear the curse that we could not bear. Upon the cross, the sins of many were placed and God the Father poured out His wrath on our substitute, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that where there is no shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. His blood was poured out in the events leading up to the cross. And when the spear was thrust in his side, he then died, was buried in a tomb. And as promised, three three days later, he was resurrected and then later ascended to heaven. But we are not alone. He lives to this very day and he reigns supreme over all. Just like the songs we sang. He is exalted over all. He is exalted over all. The question is, is He exalted over all? And is He supreme in your heart? He has taken our sin and given us His perfection. He has credited to our account His perfection so that we could be reconciled to the Father. And He will one day come back. Maybe before or after we pass away. No one knows but God, but... When this happens, will you be found in the wise camp? Will you be found in the foolish camp? Or will you be found in some other camp? Maybe you're not a professing believer. And this is very elementary to many of you. This isn't something that perhaps you've heard for the first time, and maybe some of you have. But do you believe it? Do you truly, truly within the inner chambers of your heart truly believe this message? All you have to do is truly believe. Truly believe in Jesus Christ. Put all your faith and trust in Him. It's by His grace that we are saved through faith. Not of our own works, but a gift. This is the Gospel. And it is your only hope. No matter how secure and successful you currently feel, you need this gospel. Will you be found possessing? Or will you be found lacking? It is my prayer that all of you would be found possessing. My prayer is that you would not be deceived, as were the foolish virgins, but that you would know that you know that you are saved. Before I pray, we're going to sing a song. And I want to invite all sorts of people up here. If you find yourself in the wise camp, and you know you're in the wise camp, and you just want to give thanks to God for giving grace to you, then come forward. If you find yourself in the foolish camp, And you were just struck within this sermon and saying, I don't know. 
want you to come. Come up front. If the elders would come forth, there will be people up here to pray with you. And lastly, if there is somebody that has never professed Jesus Christ and would like to give their life to Jesus Christ today, I say come. I say come. Father God, it is our prayer, it is my prayer, that you would be in every one of our hearts today. That you would save us all, that you would allow each and every one of us to cry out to you in total dependence upon you. And that that we would live our lives for you. And that you would live your life through us. Lord, I pray for those folks that find themselves in the wise camp, Lord. Lord, I I especially pray for those that find themselves in the foolish camp where I once found myself. Lord, may you stir within their hearts. May you allow them to cry out to you and may you save their souls. And finally, I pray for those that have never professed to be a follower of yours at all, Lord, that they would be stricken today and that they would give their lives to you. And this is all in your Son's precious and holy name, Jesus Christ, who is above every other name. Amen.